Uh, it's really good to be back. We were in California last weekend. This seems to be our year for going to uh, Mount Hermon Christian Conference Center. This was our third time, and every time I go, I'm so glad to uh, get back to Idaho. I'm delirious with joy. Uh, it's nice and green. There, there are just too many people. Uh, we uh, we decided Friday that we would try to beat the traffic over the hill from. Uh, from Sunnyvale, California, and so we started about 3 o'clock. We, we thought that we wouldn't get caught in the 5 o'clock traffic on the freeway that way. But believe me, there's no such thing anymore as 5 o'clock traffic. It's 24 hours a day. The freeways are jammed and bumper-to-bumper uh, -bumper traffic, people jostling each other. It's just incredible. I told Carolyn that uh, in, in five or six years, traffic won't even move in the San Francisco Bay Area. You, you will start out for San Francisco, and whole generations will be born and die. <laughs> your, uh, your grandchildren will be like will see San Francisco. Will be like going to uh, Alpha Centauri or something. Just incredible. It's really good to be back. Uh, I want to shift gears this morning. I want to talk about something that I think is unbelievably important. And uh, that's our marriages. Uh, we'll come back to Acts later on. But I want to talk a little bit about uh, marriage and what it's for and how, how one can be sustained because there's just an incredible amount of misunderstanding and misapprehension on this subject. I, it, it occurred to me a couple of weeks ago that in the past six months I've presided over more divorces than I, than I have weddings. And I'm not talking about non-Christians. I'm talking about Christians. A lot of my friends that I was in seminary with who were pastors for years are no longer married, at least not to the partner that they had when they were in school. It's a problem that's, that's endemic in society, and it's, it's encroaching on the church. It's just devastating. We've got to do something about it. I want to go back to uh, the book of Genesis and, and lay some foundation for a, a mini-series that will take uh, several weeks. We'll have two messages on this subject before Easter and then the Easter me message, and then I want to continue on for a couple of weeks afterwards because I believe the change in attitude toward, toward our, our marriages is not optional. It's imperative. We, like the Israelites have to have light in our homes in contrast to the darkness around us. The national statistic now in divorce is, is one to two. That is, the ratio is one divorce for every two marriages. But if you look at the statesmen, I get the impression that the regional statistics are more like one to one. For every marriage contracted, there is a divorce. And it seems to me that uh, this attitude toward uh, bailing out, that sort of mentality is pervasive in the church as well as in the world outside. We're getting all sorts of bad counsel from the media and from our friends and even from our Christian friends to, uh, to, to take a very lax and light view toward divorce. And we forget the commitment that we've made to our partner, a commitment that's, that's based not upon some social consensus but upon Scripture. So I want us to go back to uh, the basics, and the place to begin is the book of Genesis. Uh, turn to page 1 in your Bible, <laughs> Genesis 1. As I said, this series may go on for a while. <laughs> 
actually, I just want to talk about Genesis 1 and 2 and maybe a little bit about chapter 3 in the weeks to come, but I, I want to spend some time on Genesis 2 because this is the foundational teaching for everything else that happens in, in the Bible. Genesis is a good place to begin. The, the name suggests beginnings. It's what our, our name, Genesis, for the book comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament book. Uh, the, the Greek word is genesis, and it means beginnings or origins. So that's, uh, that's the place to uh, begin with our thinking about, about the institution. A lot of people have trouble with Genesis. They discount it because they think it, there's an anti-scientific bias in the book. And I say this not because I want to talk about the difference between what Christians believe about creation and what, uh, what scientists believe. We could spend a long time talking on that subject. I simply want to disabuse your minds of any misunderstanding you might have about the book because a lot of people just discount it because they think it's an archaic book, it's pre-scientific, uh, there's a, there's a, a conflict between what scientists are telling today and what we find in the book of Genesis, and so they just discount the whole book. And that's, if possible, I want to set right that, that concept or misconcept. There is no conflict between the book of Genesis and the findings of science, period. There may be a conflict between between Scripture and certain theories of science. There are good scientists and there are bad scientists. We shouldn't be anti-scientific as Christians, but we ought to be discerning. Uh, there are certain pronouncements that science simply cannot make because there are limitations to the scientific method. When, when a, a theory is taught, we need to understand that it's a theory. It hasn't been proven yet. It's not susceptible to the scientific method. It's simply a theory. Unfortunately, there are a lot of bad scientists. There's a lot of arrogance in science. And, and my feeling is that, that some science, scientists are searching for power rather than truth. And, and we need to be careful about the things that they say. And Carl Sagan is the worst of them because he's the most popular. When Sagan says the universe is all that there is, all that there ever was, all that there ever will be, he is a philosopher. He is not speaking as a scientist. The scientific method can't tell you that. Sagan would have to live forever in order to make a statement like that with any authority, whatever. And he says something like that. Everybody says, wow, he's a Ph.D. from Cornell University, he's a Ph.D. in biology or genetics or something. His Ph.D. May, may equip him to make certain statements on biology or astronomy, but not to make a statement like that about the cosmos. He doesn't know. He wasn't there. That's, that's a statement that scientists can't make. With any authority, they can make them. They make them all the time, but not without authority. The point I want to make is that we as Christians need to be discerning. There may be conflict between certain theories and pronouncements of science and Scripture, but there is no real conflict between Scripture and the real findings of science. Now, secondly, let me say that, that there may be a conflict between Science, the findings of science, and, and certain theories of interpretation of the Bible as well. Genesis 1 is poetry. Poetry is notoriously difficult to interpret, and we're not always sure of our interpretation. So there may sometimes be a conflict between what certain people say about Genesis and what scientists tell us they have discovered. 
But there's no real conflict between science, real science, and Scripture. Now, I say that not to destroy your authority, your con- confidence in the Word, but rather to help you to see that, that there's no conflict, and therefore don't discount what Genesis has to say about other things. If we hang up on this discussion on the relationship of science and Scripture, we don't go any further. There are profound truths to be learned from Genesis. And sometimes with our preoccupation on the scientific problem, we miss the whole point of the book. Now, with that in the back of our mind, let's, let's look at Genesis 1. I'm not going to read and comment on the entire chapter. I simply want to say that the point of Genesis 1 is to teach us that, 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 that we are loved by God. We are loved like you wouldn't believe. We, we are special, very special to him. We're not just numbers and statistics. We're, we're precious individuals that God loves and cares for in, in a very special way. That's demonstrated in Genesis 1 uh, chronologically. Man is the last of, of creation. But more specifically, it's, it's stated in Genesis 1 in terms of our likeness to God. Let me begin reading with verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, something like us. That's what the phrase means. Let us make God in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he, he created them. So we won't miss the, the force of that statement. It's, it's restated three times. So there can be no misunderstanding. This idea of image is restated in terms of, of the difference in sexes. Both male and, and female are created in the image of God. And there's a sort of classic theological problem connected with that phrase. What, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Some people project back from the fact that we have a body to uh, the idea that, that God has a body. And we look a certain way. God must look like us. And that's what Scripture means when it says we're made in our image. We were made like him physically. I heard a story once about a little boy who was drawing on a sheet of paper. And his mother came by and said, what are you drawing? He said, a picture of God. He said, well, honey, we don't know what God looks like. The little boy said, we will when I get through. <laughs> now, that's a, that's a little boy concept of God. God doesn't have a body. We don't know what God looks like. We know what God is like from Scripture, but, but there's no way we can know what God is like because he's not limited in time and space. He's not located in one place. He doesn't have a physical body as, as we have. When Scripture says that we are created in the image of God, it means that we are like God and that we are rational, spiritual, moral beings. We can reason. We can think. We, we can detect the difference between good and evil. And more importantly, we can know God. That's what it means. We are more like God than any other part of God's creation. We are just a little bit less than God. We're the nearest thing to God in all of creation. We are not God. 
but we are very much like God. Psalm 8 says that when God created man, he made him a little lower than God. Our our humanity is based upon deity. We are only men and women when we're, we're in close connection with God. The farther we get away from God, the less manly we become, the less womanly we become. As Chesterton put it, uh, if, if we worship nature, man becomes unnatural. If you worship man, you become unmanly. If you worship God, you become more godly. You become more like him. Now, I say that because I think the key to uh, restoring our relationship to one another as husband and wife is often based upon a need to restore our relationship with God. As a matter of fact, I am more and more convinced that that's at the heart of almost every marital problem. We are not pursuing God with all of our heart. When people come to me and tell me they're having trouble with their mate, almost always, the first question I ask is, how how are you doing in your relationship with God? Are you spending time in the Word? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you praying together with your partner? And they almost always say no. The the minute we start to get out of phase with God, we start to get out of phase with with our mate. That's why I say Genesis is so profound. You can read book after book from the secular world, often read by, uh, often written by people who are learned in terms of marital relationships, and, but they won't necessarily tell you that. Often they'll not because they don't know God themselves. So if you're having trouble in your marriage, you need to take a good hard look at your relationship with God. How's it going? Are you pursuing him with all of your heart? Is he your first love? And are you doing the, the, the practical day-to-day things that, that make for a healthy relationship with God? Are you spending time in the Word? Are you blocking that out as a priority in, in your life to let Him speak to you through, through the Scriptures? And are you praying that God will make this truth real? Are you worshiping Him? Are you loving Him with all of your heart? If you are, your, your chances of mending your marriage are so much better. 100% better. But, but I know from my own sad experience, when I, when I start leaving God out of my life, when I start, stop loving him, then I stop loving Carolyn. As I've said over and over again to the men on Wednesday morning, failure in, in the Christian life is very seldom a blowout. It's almost always a slow leak. We just, we just start drifting. We get busy, we get busier. And finally, time spent alone with God just goes. We don't have time to cultivate our relationship with him. We think other things are more important, and we drift away. Of course, God isn't drifting away from us. He's pursuing after us, but we've turned our back on him, and before long we we find ourselves having turned our back on our wife or our husband, and the relationship has deteriorated slowly, imperceptibly, but, but it's there. I think this is why Genesis starts right at this point, because our relationship with God is the key to everything else. It's the key to being the kind of man, the kind of woman, the sort of husband or wife that God has has called us to be. Now, Genesis 1 goes on in verse 28. 
Moses tells us that God blessed uh, the man and the male and female. The man and woman said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Establishes uh, man's authority over creation. We, we are intended to be the lords of the universe. We're like the lords of a manor who have responsibility for everything under us. We're not to blight and spoil and ruin the earth. We're, we're to rule over it, care for it, keep keep things in order, develop it for the good of all. But it seems to me that the connection between this mandate to care for the, for the earth and the statement about our, our being created in God's image, that connection is very important because the minute we stop pursuing our relationship with God and we stop becoming more and more like God, then we lose control over our environment. Everything begins to crumble around us. We're no longer lords. We're no longer victors. We're, we're victims of, of our circumstances. That's why we can't solve any of our earth's problems, because we don't take God into account. Hosea said back in the 8th century to Israel, you've departed from God and therefore the land mourns. That's, that's why we have the environmental problems that we have, and that's why we have the marital problems that we have. As General MacArthur said after the Second World War, all of our problems are theological problems. He was dead right. The reason our marriages are, are not productive and meaningful and successful is because something has happened to our relationship with God as a nation and as individuals. I'd say that's where we have to begin. If you want to gain control over your environment, you need to pursue after God with all of your heart. Now, the second account of uh, creation is found in chapter 2. It's a parallel account. It's complementary. It's not at all contradictory. The second account begins right in the middle of verse 4. When the Lord God made the earth and heavens, no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. The Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no man to water the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a human being, and a living, be living being, living soul, a human. Uh, there are a lot of people that say, aha, mistake in the Bible. I always knew there were mistakes, and now I've found one. Sequence is different. In chapter 1, plants are created before man. Here, the plants are created after man, they didn't read the text carefully. It describes this creation as the, or this, this uh, description of things as no shrub of the field, no bush of the field. These are cultivated plants. There were no cultivated plants because there was no man to put the seed in the soil and no man to irrigate them. So there were annual floods that, that kept the Tigris-Euphrates Valley uh, green but there were no cultivated plants. And so God made man to cultivate the soil and to dig irrigation ditches and do the sort of thing that had to be done in the ancient world in order to grow crops. So God uh, scraped together some dust. 
literally, the, the Hebrew word is clod, some clods, which it might explain a lot of things, really. <laughs> Someone came up after the, uh, after the service this morning and said, uh, how could he find any dust anyway when he just got through flooding the ground? It must have been mud that he scraped together. He, he, he took a, some dirt and he formed a man and he breathed into it the breath of life and this, uh, this piece of clay became a human being. That's some indication of our worth. Honestly, we are so arrogant. We are so arrogant. What Genesis teaches us is that man's worth is derived from God. We're endowed with significance because God made us and God breathed into us a breath of life. Apart from that, we're just, uh, you know, a few, few elements scraped together from the ground. If you took, all, if, if you took man and just uh, took all the space out between the cells and the molecules and the nuclei of the cells, you just kind of squeeze them down real tight. He would be about the size of, a, of one seventh of a carat uh, diamond and, and worth considerably less. That's our value. Something like 39 cents, someone said, in, in terms of components, elements. Our significance comes from God. And, you know, how do we ever justify in our thinking this idea I don't need God? I can live life apart from God when the very next breath that we draw comes from God. Some little microbe could strike us down tomorrow and end our life. And we strut our way through life as, as though we're somebody with significance apart from God. As though we're independent beings. As though we're God himself. It's craziness. A few years ago I read a, an article by Howard Butt called The Art of Being a Big Shot. Let me quote, it's my pride, he says, that makes me independent from God. It's appealing to me to think that I'm the master of my own fate, can run my own life, that I can call my own shots and go it alone. He said, that is monumental dishonesty. I cannot go it alone. I have to get help from other people. I can't reply upon, rely upon myself. I'm dependent upon God for my next breath. It's, it is dishonest of me to pretend that I am anything other than a man, limited, weak, small, so living independent of God is a grand delusion. It is not just a matter of, matter of pride being an unfortunate little trait and humility being an attractive little virtue. It is my inner psychological integrity that is at stake. When I am conceited, I am lying to myself about what I am. I am pretending to be God and not man. Pride is the idolatrous worship of self, and it's the national religion of hell. Who do we think we are? <coughs> Believing that, that, that we can... Get away with, with being an independent being. In a universe controlled and ruled by God. When everything about us tells us that we're utterly dependent upon him. That's why Genesis is so good. It just keeps forcing us back to the beginnings, to the fundamentals. Those of you, that, you men and women that have been involved in athletics, you know that a good coach will just keep taking you back to the fundamentals. That's what scripture does. We need God. We're restless without Him. We have no independent existence apart from Him. Without Him, our environment falls apart. That's why our marriages fall apart. Uh, these verses I just read describe the creation of man. 
what follows is a creation of the, the creation of the garden. Verse eight. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. Eden is probably a primitive word; it simply means plain. It came later to mean something more like our uh, concept of Eden, a garden of delight. But originally, it simply meant a plain, and it's a reference, evidently, to the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, where the garden was was planted, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. He put some ornamentals around to please uh, uh, Adam's aesthetic sense, his appreciation for the beautiful and the good. He gave him some fruit trees. And in the middle of the garden was the tree of life, which was intended to uh, sustain man forever. We are creatures of eternity. We were made to live forever originally. That's where all these yearnings come from, for something more. We know that we're, we're not satisfied to, uh, to live for the here and now. There has to be something more. As Judy Garland says, is this all there is? There's got to be something more. That's that memory of the fact that we were made for eternity and made for God. And secondly, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I've said before that tree symbolizes the knowledge of everything or omniscience. The terms good and evil... It's a figure of speech, the sort of thing that we, that we uh, do when we say that's the long and short of something. We mean that's everything. And, and this is a tree that signified the knowledge of everything. God says, I, and later this, he's prohibited from eating this tree. God says, it's really not for you to touch this tree. It's not for you to know everything. I, I, want, to, I want to teach you good and evil. I want to make up the rules for life. I made you. I understand life. And I'll let you know what hurts and what helps. You, you, you can't know those things. I'll teach you. That's why this book is so important. That's why we need to go back to it time and time again. There's so, such monumental nonsense taught to us in, in current uh, secular marriage uh, manuals. We, we probably ought to read them because we ought to know what's going on in the world. That's, that's the only way we can, can stay relevant and talk to the world, perhaps. But uh, we need to, to look at everything through Scripture. And if you read something in a marriage manual that contradicts Scripture, forget it. It's not true. It's ultimately harmful. Our authority is the Word, and everything needs to be tested by the, by the Word. We, we don't make up the rules. Uh, furthermore, Moses tells us there was a river system, four rivers that watered the garden, and there was gold there, and we'll not take time to comment on it. The point is simply that God did everything he could to make man comfortable and feel at home. He gave him a good irrigation system to work with, and there was gold there, and it's just a marvelous place to live, everything a man could want. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and took care of it. Work is not the result of the fall. It preceded the fall. Man was made to work and to take care of it, to watch over it. I, I think man was uh, created to, to make the whole world a garden, and he was to learn from seeing how God had planted the garden and, and go out of the garden and make the whole universe a garden. The Lord God commanded the man, you are not to eat from any tree, you, you, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. That's the test. One tree. 
Man wasn't uh, designed to make up the rules. He was to be dependent upon God. And perhaps the most significant statement in the entire account is verse 18. The Lord God said it's not good. All the way through Genesis 1, God created and he said it's good. He created and said it's good. He created and it's good. He created this beautiful garden and he says it's not good. Something's wrong. Man didn't have any, anybody to share his work with. No one to talk to. No one to nudge when he saw something beautiful. He was lonely. He didn't even know it. He just knew that something was wrong. God says, I'll make a helper suitable for him. There's nothing denigrating about that idea of, of a helper. Seventeen times in the Old Testament, that verb is used of God. God who is our help. The man needs someone. He's not a man by himself. He needs a helper. Someone who's suitable for him. Someone to help him get on with the job of making the, the world into a garden. It's a significant role. Crucial role. Verse 19, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air. That's a better translation than he formed because the, the animals had been formed prior to the creation of man. It's simply a flashback to that uh, creation and he reminds us that God had, was responsible for the creation of the beasts and the birds and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. I suspect he started with yardbark, worked his way on to zebra or whatever. <clears throat> this idea of naming in, in the ancient world is, uh, uh, is symbolic of sovereignty. You, you gain control over something by naming it. We still do that. I have a friend who's a bird watcher, and, and we go out in the desert. He says, well, that's a tiny two-toed tit whistle or something. And, and it just gives him a tremendous amount of satisfaction to name that thing and put it in, put it in its place. And I think that's a, sort of a memory, again, of the place that we were originally created to occupy in the universe. We're lords of the universe. We want to analyze everything, understand it, and give it a name catalog it, put it in its proper place in creation. That was one reason Adam was to name uh, all these creatures, and his, the implication of the Hebrew text is they named them all with reference to him, gave them a name that would signify their relationship to him. And uh, one day after a long day of naming, he came in, totally worn out, exhausted, discouraged, and God saw his long face, and he said, what, what, what's the matter? Adam said, there's no helper. There's nobody out there to help me. You know, there are animals that uh, will carry my burdens, and there are animals that provide me with uh, clothing. Of course, he didn't have any then. But there are animals that will provide me with food and milk and whatnot, but there's no one to help me. God says, well, that's what I want you to learn. You need a helper. So... Um, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with, with flesh. I, I suppose one of the reasons we men like to take naps in the afternoon is that this is a vestigial memory of... 
I remember reading this one time, and a woman came up to me afterward and said, this explains why my old man always lays around the house. <laughs> but I think there's something far more significant here. <laughs> God wanted to make provision for the man. He had, it seems to me that over and over again through Genesis 1, the fact is emphasized that God is a great lover and a great giver to man. And he just wants to give and give and give. He doesn't want to take anything away from us. He wanted to make provision for the man. He didn't want him running through the woods looking for a mate. He didn't want him hustling. He didn't want him looking over his shoulder and kibitzing, you know, and saying, I'd rather have a blonde or, or whatever. He wanted to make provision for the man. He knew what his needs were. And uh, so he created this lovely creature from man's side. And he brought her to the man. And the man, as the saying is today, just absolutely torqued out. <clears throat> just went berserk. Leaped into the air, shouted, Whoopee! That's a ten. I'll take it. <clears throat> Composed a poem, which is what men do when they uh, fall in love. He said, this, the, uh, uh, in Hebrew, the demonstrative, this is feminine. <laughs> this uh, young lady is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Uh, you can gather from the English translation that, that the word woman and man are connected. Actually, in English, our word woman is not a feminine form of man. It comes from wolf man, if you, if you believe that. Uh, man who, who weaves, makes warps and woofs. Uh, but, it, but it does give us some idea of what's behind the, uh, our translations because uh, the, the Hebrew word for woman here in this text, Isha, is the approximate feminine form of man. She's, she's man's counterpart. She's his helper. She's the one who, who's like him, the one that he needs, the helper. And then what follows is Moses' uh, conclusion. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The New International Virgin, a version puts it. Uh, <laughs> That's a real Freudian slip there. <laughs> You know, it actually happened one time. I had a friend who worked in a bookstore, and a young lady came in and asked for a revised standard version, a virgin of the Bible. The, uh, the New International Version translates be united as though the verb is passive, but it's not. It's active. Initiative is put on the man. The man will leave mother and father and cleave to his wife and he shall become one flesh and the two were naked and unashamed now this is the passage we're going to talk about for the next several weeks just this one phrase Moses comment pregnant with significance powerful profound statement of the nature of marriage now guys come in to see me and they say I'm going to leave my wife say, what, what do you mean you're going to leave your wife 
That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, leave your mother and father and cleave to your wife. Suppose God said, I, I'm going to leave you because there are other people who love me more. It doesn't work that way. Moses says, for this reason, because of the institution of, uh, of marriage by God, the fact that he, he brings together one man and one woman for life. Moses says, for this reason, a man shall leave mother and father and cleave to his wife. A very strong word in Hebrew. It means to adhere to, to be glued to your wife. So I don't like that one. It hurts too much. Sure it hurts. Who said it wouldn't hurt? You said when you married her it was for better or for worse. And you said, well, she's a lot worse than I, than I thought. <laughs> Doesn't make any difference. You get two people together who, who for 20 plus years have lived for themselves and, and, and all of a sudden they're in a relationship. That, you know, does some magic transpire up there at the altar that, that just changes their whole personality and their self-centeredness? No. No, it's a struggle. Takes work. It's hard. She'll zig and you'll zag, and sometimes you just don't mesh. Moses is clean. For myself, I cannot see any biblical justification for divorce. Period. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead. I cannot see it. Scripture doesn't endorse it or sanctify it. Malachi says God hates divorce. He doesn't hate divorcees, but he hates divorce. It's not, in, it's not an option. It's not in the books. That means we've got to work. We've got to work hard at our marriages. Good marriages don't happen. They're caused. The best way to cause your marriage to fall apart is to stop working on it. The minute you stop working, it stops working. You can never get to the place that you feel you've arrived and you don't have any more to... You can't contribute anything more to the marriage. You just keep working at it. Keep working at it. Got to keep moving. Or it falls apart. I, uh, years ago, got into cycling. I bought a lightweight bike and bicycle, and I used to ride up in the Santa Cruz Mountains behind my house. Uh... You know, you strap yourself into those things. And uh, I, I very often uh, would get preoccupied, and I'd be thinking about something else, and I came cruising down one of those hills behind my house and pulled up to a stop sign, and I, and I forgot that I hadn't released the foot, the uh, latch on my feet. My feet were securely fastened into the pedals, and uh, I didn't realize it until I was at a dead standstill, and I just, just fell over, just crashed. <laughs> This dear lady in a Mercedes was sitting there at the stop sign, and she pushed the button and rolled the window down, stuck her head out, she looked right straight down at me, and she said, Are you all right? <clears throat> so not really. That's when I learned a very important lesson. You stop pedaling, you fall down. And the application to our marriages is obvious, isn't it? You stop working at it, and the whole thing just falls apart. Uh, we're out of time. I'm really frustrated. We'll come back to this, but I just want to say two things. Number one, what, what, what is your relationship to God right now? Do you hunger and thirst after God and his righteousness? 
Are you subject to our Lord Jesus? Do you love him? Are you worshiping him? That's the number one priority. You get that straight? Everything else begins to fall into place. But if that's not straight, I really don't hold up much hope for your marriage because we do not have the resources ourselves to sustain a marriage apart from God. That's the whole point of Genesis 1 and 2. It takes God to make a marriage. Without God, the whole thing will fall apart. And secondly, we need to renew our commitment to one another and cleave to one another. You need to look at your partner and say, under no circumstances will I ever leave you. I don't care what it costs me or you. We're going to stick this thing out. We're going to make it work. Divorce is not an option for us. And then we can begin to work at making our marriages everything that that God intends them to be. You say, my marriage is hopeless. No, if you say that, then what you're saying is that God is hopeless. There's all sorts of hope because we have an eternally powerful God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the partners in life that you've given to us. And we pray that uh, we, like Adam, would, would come to appreciate them for all that they are and realize that they're the, the one that you've given to us. Help us, Lord, to hunger and thirst after you, to long for fellowship with you, and to pursue it with all of our hearts. And then help us on the basis of of the eternal, infinite resources that we have to, to begin to pursue our partner in life with all of our heart and to love them as you love us. Thank you for your commitment to us that you will never divorce us. It never crosses your mind. And we thank you for that example of enduring uh, love. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.